Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The roads you drive on, the land you live on, and the places you shop are all influenced by some sort of community planning. The better your living and working environment are planned, the better they function. And there's growing momentum to include Native voices in that planning for more sustainable and more welcoming spaces. Coming up, we'll hear about Indigenous community planning. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Alaska Native advocates are supporting legislation that would expand testing and regulations for trace amounts of PFAS, chemicals in Alaska's groundwater that's been linked to cancer and other serious health conditions. Alaska State Senator Jesse Keel has sponsored legislation that would police seven varieties of the so-called forever chemicals that don't break down and often enter the environment from firefighting foams used at airports. These things are bad for people in extremely small amounts. We're talking about parts per trillion in your drinking water. The Juno Democrats bill comes in response to Republican Governor Mike Dunleavy's move to water down Alaska's regulation of PFAS found in industrial and household items, including nonstick cookware. Jackie Boyer, policy director of Native People's Action, an indigenous rights group in Anchorage, told Alaska senators that American Indians and Alaska Natives are at risk of getting certain types of cancers. This impacts individuals families, babies and children, and animals and fish. And there may be more in the future. Additionally, the contamination may compound in individuals already exposed by continuing to practice our ways of life by hunting and fishing contaminated sustenance. Alaska senators also heard from local officials in Yakutat. The community of 600 has PFAS contamination in wells near the airport. The tiny community is facing a $6 million cost of extending water mains to supply households and businesses where groundwater is contaminated by the forever chemicals. Indigenous people in Maine are working on a plan to boost tourism for the state's five Wabanaki nations. They're set to take part in a state tourism conference this week. Lily Bulky reports. The Wabanaki Cultural Tourism Initiative has received both a federal grant from Health and Human Services and a state grant from the Maine Office of Tourism. Charlene Virgilio is with the Four Directions Development Corporation, the first native community development financial institution in northern New England. As a member of the Penobscot Nation, she says cultural preservation is central to the project. Its goal is to create unique experiences to share the ways that Wabanaki people have long been stewards of the land and water. Canoeing, kayaking along the ancestral rivers that we have, traditional fishing methods, whatever those kind of things that will help preserve culture, but also help tourists experience that culture. Virgilio adds authenticity is a key component for many Wabanaki communities interested in boosting tourism. Matthew Lewis, also with Four Directions and a member of the Passamaquoddy tribe, says in addition to preserving and sharing culture, this effort is a way to bring more revenue to Maine's indigenous communities and boost the local economies. He says there are so many artisans in the community to engage with, for instance. Tourism can 
sometimes have a negative connotation with some communities saying we don't want folks just driving through, taking pictures, doing the sort of like Disneyland package. We want meaningful engagement with the community and meaningful engagement with the culture. Lewis adds as they map out the robust Four Season Tourism industry that they hope to achieve by 2030, they also have to consider what infrastructure is needed, from hotels and restaurants to workforce development and hospitality training. That was Lily Bulky reporting. The Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, announced this week a partnership with the Jane Goodall Institute. The partnership is intended to increase youth programming. It will offer a summer internship for one IAIA student and five to eight mini grants for Indigenous youth. A virtual event is planned for May 12th and will feature guest speakers, including Dr. Jane Goodall. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 29th and 30th on the powwow grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Support by AARP. New help is available for those struggling to afford high-speed Internet. Eligible households can get a discount of up to $75 per month for households on tribal land. Info by texting INTERNET to 22777. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Don't projects work out much more smoothly when there's a clear, well-thought plan to follow? That's the name of the game for community planners, a profession that affects your everyday life. They aim to organize and improve communities by developing strategies for utilizing select spaces and land for specific uses. Indigenous community planning is a concept that some professionals are incorporating to make living spaces more welcoming. One focus emphasizes the culture and practices of the people ultimately using the space, whether it's a city block, a park, or a tribal headquarters. In this hour, we'll learn much more about what community planning looks like and why Indigenous voices are so important in the process. As always, you can join us. What community improvements would you like to see in your Native community? Call us 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Phone lines are open. Dr. Lainaya Patrick is an assistant professor and faculty member in health sciences at Simon Fraser University. She's a member of the Stellaton First Nation, and she's speaking with us from Vancouver, British Columbia. Lainaya, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Speaking with us in Tohajli, New Mexico, is Chelsea Begay. She's the program coordinator for the Indigenous Design and Planning Institute at the University of New Mexico, and she is a graduate student in the Community and Regional Planning Program. She's Navajo. Chelsea, welcome. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure um, speaking with you all. 
Also joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico is Moises Gonzalez. He's the Associate Dean at the University of New Mexico School of Architecture and Planning. He's Henicero and he's been on the show before. Moises, welcome back to NAC. Thank you for having me on the show. Really excited about today's topic. And one more guest in Albuquerque today, Vidal Gonzalez. He's another graduate student in the Community and Regional Planning Program at UNM with a concentration in Indigenous Planning. He's Santa Clara and Isleta Pueblo. Great to have you on the show, Vidal. Hello, great for, having, for, great for being here. All right, let's talk community planning. Liana, I, I gave a very brief description earlier. Can you elaborate a bit and help us understand what community planning is and maybe give us an example? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I think you gave a really great description of what it is, and, and I think uh, it really runs the gamut from addressing really practical, um, everyday issues to thinking more long-term and aspiring to what um, a city or a town or a region might look like. So, you know, I think some of the, the issues that are engaged with in community planning are pretty familiar to people. They might include things like transportation, like housing, um, community building, how social services are allocated. Um, it runs the whole spectrum. And then, of course, you know, more recently, I think, cities have really come to understand their role in addressing uh, social, environmental, and economic um, issues facing communities. And it runs a spectrum, again, from really small villages uh, right up to whole regions. So in Vancouver, where I am, we, you know, I'm in Vancouver, the city proper, but there's also all sorts of municipalities adjacent. It's a, a pretty dense, um, you know, population of just over 2 million in the metro Vancouver region. So we have a metro van uh, planning commission um, and planners that work at that level. So, um, yeah, so I think that just gives like a little snapshot of what, uh, of what planning writ large kind of is. Well, it sounds like a, a really wide-ranging field that draws from a variety of disciplines and expertise. Now, there's this whole indigenous component, indigenous community planning. Um, it, it's gaining momentum. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've been uh, I've been involved with Indigenous community planning for I guess just over a decade now, um, and to be honest, when I started in this, I had I really didn't know what planning was. Uh, so it's been a journey to understand what it means not only uh, in the mainstream, but then what it means for Indigenous communities. Um, and I think here, and of course I'm speaking primarily to the Canadian context and, and then more specifically to, to British Columbia, but um, I think one of the reasons here that it's become something that's been increasingly people are really interested in and want to talk about is uh, there's a form of planning that started to develop maybe 15 years ago here called Comprehensive Community Planning. And it's an approach to planning that had been tried a number of years ago, um, and that just gained this new momentum. And it's really, it does come from the federal government. It's still, uh, because of course our communities are still um, under this federal regulation and control, which has been a problem, and I can talk about that more. Um, but in terms of comprehensive community planning, it was really recognized that planning in Indigenous communities has 
been pretty terrible, uh, to say the least, and has not involved the community and has not involved, engaged with our um, histories, our protocols, our values. And so there's been a real effort to, to change that picture and, um, and to be really inclusive of the whole range of things within the community that are important to us, things like governance and land and resources and health and culture. Um, so I think that there's just been this really growing support and interest for it, um, particularly uh, more recently. Now, Indigenous community planning, does it look differently in a, in a rural Native community as opposed to an urban area? Yeah, and so my, most of my research and work, I, I come from a background of doing community health work and education, and so a lot of my work took place with reserve-based communities. Uh, and so when I started my work in planning, I was really interested in this idea of urban Indigenous community planning, and in part because, you know, over 50% of our population in Canada lives off-reserve, and I think the numbers are probably similar, if not a bit higher, in the United States. And uh, a lot of our community members go back and forth from home communities, including myself, and so I really wondered, what does that mean for our lives in the cities, but also our lives back home? And so I started to look a bit at the history of urban planning and from an Indigenous perspective. And cities have long um, said you know, that they have no responsibility for this history of colonization or of dispossession of Indigenous peoples from their homeland. So, um, so it's, it's kind of been an erasure of Indigenous people from the city and from planning. But again, that's also very much changing. Uh, and I think that similar maybe again to the United States, we have a history of um, urban community organizing and development starting in the 1950s when increasing numbers of people moved, started moving to cities. And so I started looking at those um, friendship centers and Indian centers that started to develop as being really core to this new um, movement towards urban self-determination and identity. And I think it's really intimately linked too to activism and other self-determination movements like Red Power and American Indian Movement, which really um, originated in, in urban spaces. So I think there's a long history of planning and organizing that just hasn't gotten the attention that it really needs and should have. Now, Lana, you mentioned um these urban native centers in, in, in cities and towns are, are there examples of indigenous community planning there in Vancouver where you are? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, in fact, I do film work as well. And I did a short film called the place to belong about the Vancouver Aboriginal friendship center. And, um, and that center started in, I guess in the sixties, um, as the Kokolitsa Friendship Center. And, you know, it was really a matter of all these, you know, folks coming to the city and feeling this uh, total isolation, um, that, you know, feeling so lonely and alone and that there were no, no services at all designed to, um, you know, meet the needs of, of Indigenous peoples who often were coming out of these residential schools that had produced, you know, um, so much, so much disconnection anyways. Uh, and so, you know, there was a group of people who realized like the importance of creating these, 
these organizations and these institutions. And often, you know, the funding did come from the federal government, but they were just meant to be, you know, referral organizations. They were meant to refer to these mainstream organizations that were going to, you know, supposedly assimilate Indigenous people, and they realized that was not going to work. And so they created really unique programs and services um, for the needs of the Indigenous folks that were accessing them. And a lot of it was volunteer labor, too. Um, and so these these friendship centers really developed uniquely according to the nations that were in their territory, because um, you'll find different programs, whether you know, it was on the prairies where they first started and their Cree and Métis, or you know, out here on the West Coast where we had, um, we're in Coast Salish territory, but we have a whole bunch of different nations too. So I think they're really unique institutions as well um, that realize we need to do this work ourselves. Um, so it represented a really um, a departure from that uh, dependency that I think those colonial programs were really trying to, to breed amongst Indigenous people. Lana, thank you so much for that background. Indigenous community planning, that is the focus of Native America Calling today. If you have a question, if you've got a comment, if you have a need for Indigenous community planning projects in your community, we would love to hear about them on the show today. one 800 996-2848. That's the number to call. You can also connect with us online at NativeAmericaCalling.com. Reach us on Facebook. We've also got Twitter at one 800 native Again, we'd really like to hear your questions, your comments, your thoughts. An interesting discussion, a conversation about Indigenous community planning. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. We will be back after a break. Some of us don't think about planting gardens until we see leaves on the trees. Others are preparing all winter to get the most out of the growing season. Even if you are committed to traditional native gardening, there are modern methods and tools that can help you get there. We'll hear about what they are on the next Native America Calling. Mesa Lands Community College can help you lead the way in your chosen field. At Mesa Lands, where one in three students is Native American, you get hands-on opportunities working one-on-one -on -one with instructors in wind energy, where students go up the turbine in their first semester, silversmithing with access to the largest foundry in the Southwest, and blacksmithing in the cowboy arts. Mesa Lands has a national top ten rodeo team, too. Info and applications at mesalands.edu. Mesa Lands Community College supports this program. Welcome back. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about community planning in Native America today, and we need some listener feedback. How important is it for community plans and projects to reflect your Native culture and identity? That's the question. So if you've got an answer, please share it by calling 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. Let's bring another voice into the conversation. Chelsea, the institute where you are is an influential voice in indigenous planning. What is the mission and what can students expect to learn there? Yeah, 
thank you. Um, so the Indigenous Design and Planning Institute, or IDPI as short, um, is an initiative in the UNM School of Architecture and Planning. Um, our mission is to educate and inform Indigenous design and planning by engaging our faculty, our students, professionals in the field, and community leaders, community members, in culturally responsive practices through um, utilizing the community's culture and identity. Um, so Indigenous planning is the paradigm, remembering that you know people are already beautiful. The people already know their stories. People already know the stories of their land. And um, using that knowledge um, of the past to inform the present, and it together builds a vision towards the future. Um, this is sort of our seven generations modeling um, that we utilize in a lot of our community engagement efforts. Chelsea, what types of projects do you work on there at the at the center, the Institute? Yeah, so our projects have ranged um, regionally. We've worked with Navajo communities on um, tourism um, reports, tourism projects. Um, in the Chaco Canyon area, there are about five um, Navajo chapters um, that surround the area. And they were trying to figure out, you know, how they could approach tourism um, in a responsible way. Um, another really good project was with the uh, Yisleta del Sur, uh, which is a pueblo down in El Paso. And they were looking um, to figure out how to plan out a cultural corridor um, project, um, since they are sort of in that urban area of El Paso. There were a lot of um, signage around the area that were asking, you know, um, the tourists are people coming in, into their communities, sort of what they can and can't do, and a lot of people were ignoring that. And so the um, people took it upon themselves to come to ITPI and ask for assistance on how um, they could kind of figure out how to um, design and plan a buffer zone um, area um, for their people. And uh, it was a comprehensive plan, meaning that it was a long-term plan. Um, and um, they wanted this plan presented to their younger generation, so to the students. And so that was a really um, interesting approach that we had really um, never done before. But it made a lot of sense that you know the younger generation were going to take over these plans um, for the future, and so they should be involved in the planning and know what that um, what that planning was all around and what the report said. Now, Chelsea, I'm interested in learning more about the process. What actually goes into creating a plan like the one you described down there in Isleta del Sur? Because um, you know, planning is such. A, it seems like there's just so many components to it. What's kind of the first step? Like when you when you worked on that buffer zone there, was it? Where did you take off to get that all under underway? Yeah, so we um, definitely require an interdisciplinary design um, and planning approach. Um, so we have the architecture program within our school, the landscape architecture, and the planning program. So really utilizing our students um, and what they're learning in their programs. Um, to take it to the community and have that sort of real-world experience working with community members. 
Um, so coming at it, I believe, um, you know, we were able to create a course around um, around this report and go down um, actually to the community and start doing our community engagement um, work, utilizing focus groups um, to really bring out some of the themes and some of the issues, concerns, hopes um, that they wanted to see in these plans. And about how long does it take to, to put the whole plan together, Chelsea? Uh, so we plan out about a year in advance, and then depending on how we're going to approach this, whether we gather students to do, um, to sort of employ them and bring in their expertise um, as a team, um, we'll go that route, or we'll design a course around this. Um, perhaps it's um, designing some schematics, so utilizing the architecture program or creating a sort of land use, land, um, a land plan. Um, so that will bring in the landscape architecture program um, and also the planning program. Or um, it's also designed around a studio. Um, so our students um, in some of their exit requirements require a studio. Um, so it takes about a semester um, to do the community engagement work and maybe another semester after that to finalize a report and report it back to the community. Now, fascinating, a student-led project like this, about how many Native students were involved with this? A handful of um, Native students, especially in the planning program, is where we see um, a lot of recruitment and retention with our um, Indigenous students. Architecture is a little hard to come by, but I think um, I think there is starting to become more interest in um, our Indigenous students realizing how they could design and plan um, and be a part of the architecture process, especially now that we have an actual Indigenous chair, um, really the first Indigenous chair in the nation to be um, an Indigenous person, um, Ms., uh, the chair, Chris Cornelius, who comes from Oneida. Um, so I think garnering that kind of support and um, just excitement around Indigenous architecture is um, really becoming um, part of our recruitment of Indigenous students. And landscape architecture, we have seen very few um, Indigenous students come through that program. Just, it's a really rigorous program with a lot of studio hours. And, um, but we have a lot of faculty members that are interested and have taken on the challenge of um, including and indigenizing their courses um, to, um, to kind of fit some of the projects that we're undertaking. It's one of the things I find so so interesting about this field is just again the wide ranging um, subjects and components. You mentioned landscape planning and architecture, building design, so many working parts to this. And earlier uh, we heard Lana mention that she has a community health background. And Chelsea, I'm, I'm interested in, in what drew you to community planning. Uh, so I got my bachelor's um, at the university. School of UNM School of Architecture and Planning. 
um, in the Bachelor's of Environmental Planning and Design. I first went in as um, an architecture major. Um, I was interested in that. I was interested in creating buildings um, and figuring out how, you know, I could make progress in my community. But then I, you know, I took an introductory class and um, it was way over my head. So I went back to my advisor and I was like, you know, I don't think architecture is quite for me right now. Is there, you know, anything else that I can, I can do? I want to do something in community development. I want to go back to my community and help them. You know, there's not a lot of progress that has happened in my community over the, over the past, you know, since I can remember. But you know, our elders are always telling us to get our education and come back and, you know, create these initiatives and institutions within our communities. And so I went back to the school and took a community and regional planning course, um, a watershed, an introduction to watershed management. And I took that with um, Mr. Bill Fleming. And I just remember him talking uh, about his work with watersheds, restoration um, in in several um, indigenous communities. Um, these communities were all across the world. Um, I remember the one um, case study that he did was on Peru. Um, so that really got my interest in um, how planning could help my community. And I didn't know what planning was in, in the beginning either, but as I have gone through this program and worked with these different tribal communities, um, I've, I've been really proud of, um, of the work that we do. Well, Jesse, it, it sounds like Native planners are, are making big differences in, in a lot of Indigenous communities, and wonderful to hear about this. And best of luck to you as well in your career um, really inspirational to hear your story and your background. Let's bring Moises into our conversation now. And again, he is also at the UNM School of Architecture and Planning. And Moises, how far back does community planning go? Can you give us some history? Well, I think this is the thing is, um, you know, as we talk in this conversation about, you know, interesting in the topics of where community planning lands, is it in public health or is it in architecture and planning or landscape architecture. My area is, is urban design, which is community design, uh, the, the actual design aspect. So when communities create visions, how do we actually implement that from a, from a built standpoint, like a built environment standpoint? So I just wanna say where I think community planning has always existed in indigenous communities um, and, and, and where it got fractured is you know, it's this competing idea of universities or higher uh, education within the idea of siloing um, knowledge, right? And that comes out of the Enlightenment period, right? So you get fast forward today, we have professional disciplines of architecture, planning, uh, civil engineering, public health, and all these fields. But what happens if we think about it, indigenous communities always plan for themselves. It's just that colonization took that process away. And so when you look at kind of the, the how it became very uh, important after the social movements that were going on, especially um, questioning, you know, and, and then even today questioning colonialism, um, what we, you, we've seen what the top-down approach from maybe BIA uh, planning from the federal uh, government to 
uh, community uh, to communities that's enforced right this idea that a hud home existed in indigenous communities throughout north america but all these communities have different perspective and cultural um cultural indigenous knowledge in where they planning comes from so i think mm-hmm. what um going building what chelsea mentioned uh you know how do we how do we leverage these various disciplines but come back where i think the the the, the, the opinion is is where is community knowledge and traditional knowledge and indigenous knowledge part of the conversation and how do we us as professionals listen to communities and be aware of, of community knowledge and leverage that community into a process so we don't come in we train our our our, um, our students to not come in as experts but come in as a, 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 a perspective of knowledge but not being a, a knowledge that we we, we understand uh, where that knowledge is and that knowledge is based in the community and the elders and in the youth and so how do we facilitate that knowledge so i think community planning is actually it's always existed and i think what it is is pushing back on on these forms of of of, of specialized knowledge in the urban planner in the architect in the landscape architect in the civil engineer and and putting it back the knowledge back in the community and, and and leveraging community knowledge so to me that's the the under maybe the the pedagogical or the philosophical or the indigenous decolonial okay. component of planning sure and and moises I, I just you know when we have this conversation today i just cannot help but think about places like mesa verde there uh in the four corners area not too far from where you're at in albuquerque i think of chaco canyon and I think of these um, historic, classical indigenous communities that um, we're still learning so much more about. I mean, we've been planning for centuries as indigenous people in, in quite uh, in, in very sophisticated, highly technological formats, haven't we? Yes, I mean, uh, yeah, and Taos Pueblo is another one. Acoma Pueblo, you can, you know, the orientation and solar orientation. You can really look at how communities were designed within even uh, anchoring climate, right? So if you look at modern architecture, if you look at an aerial photo on Google, all the buildings are uh, or organized as orthogonal north, right? And the problem with that is none of them are gaining access to sunlight at per- certain parts of the years, uh, certain parts of the year, or you know, some parts of the buildings have snow on them or ice on them all year round. That is not, so these concepts, Western knowledge are a direct conflict. And if we're looking at climate change and traditional agriculture is a huge component, right? So if we look at like, um, you know, and you've spent a lot of time on this show and I appreciate the work that you all do on traditional food, traditional food and uh, traditional agricultural systems and how tribes are working at that. Because that is at, for example, at the core of, even if we look at food systems, Traditional food systems, if you compare buildings and architecture and planning like you do traditional foods, we can see that the breakdown was where Western knowledge tried to enforce its power and dominance in switched uh, indigenous thinking that has perpetuated more problems with climate change. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember reading a book uh, a few years ago, and they had done some studies down in, in South America. And it wasn't until they were actually able to fly over some of these sites and when they could get an aerial view and they noticed that there were extensive, um, the way they had forested environments and things like that and the way they had created waterways, there was extensive planning that was going on in those communities 
hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but nobody knew about it simply because uh, no modern people knew about it uh, uh, because they couldn't fly overhead and see what had gone and the, the, the force growth had overtaken it. But it was just fascinating to learn what the history is there and how involved we have been as Native people in these processes. And we, we think of community plans, uh, like our guests have mentioned, there's so much that goes into these besides just buildings and roads and things like that. We think of development of natural resources, air quality, uh, policing, fire protection, lots can go into it as well. Um, housing, local commercial services, health services, like Lana mentioned, employment, education, even the spiritual components, just a lot of, lot of working parts. And again, just so fascinating in terms of how this is all developed and how it plays out. And we're having a great conversation today. And if you want to get in on it, please give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. I'm Sean Spruce, and we're going to be back after this short break. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, StrongHeart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by StrongHeart's Native Helpline. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on indigenous community planning today, and there's still time to share your ideas. What future projects would benefit your community? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Before we went to break, we were listening to Moises, and he was explaining some of the history and some of the background to indigenous community planning. And Moises, I'm interested in knowing more about where Native people fit into the planning process. And uh, if we're not involved, um, how what happens to these projects and infrastructure in terms of whether or not they can meet the needs of a community? Well, I think that's it. I think there's the failures of planning. I mean, for, for if you go back to urban renewal and the, the, the professional aspects of planning, you know, we could see how even in urban areas, you know, African-American communities, uh, urban um, uh, communities with uh, how how ideas of knocking down uh, what was conceived as older buildings and we have these social projects of moving folks into like in ur- uh, black African communities into uh, public housing uh, projects that were also a failure. So the problem is, is for for in the in, in terms of planning is, is about a. a the failures of it most of it unfortunately and the and what we've learned is in the in the history of of our disciplines in the built environment that unless indigenous communities voices unless that knowledge um is is uh, is brought to the forefront in community then projects will continue to fail because they won't meet the needs of the cultural aspects of a community or they won't meet where uh, uh, the goals of the community and uh just like you know the failed projects of, of you know of, of forcing um, non-native diets on indigenous people. It's the same thing. The same thing is, is has happened with the built environment. So they parallel, right? They, they parallel the aspects of if you don't involve if community knowledge 
uh, indigenous knowledge isn't part of uh, even planning, even for cities that they don't even understand their locations and how the indigenous how indigenous communities uh, the the ideas and the thought process. These are all failed projects. So I even say that as far as take a stretch in the southwest with climate change and drought, in uh, learning what the experiences of Mesa Verde and Chaco is, if we don't take these lessons, it's not you know it, it's 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 it goes speaks to a broader failure of 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 cities because of this lack of understanding of indigenous architecture and planning. And Moises, what are what are some some successful planning projects that you've been involved with over the years from the indigenous perspective? Well, I've been collaborating with Ted Hohol as the founder of uh, Itpiat UNM, and so uh, working with I actually worked on the Sleda del Sur city, uh, studio that Chelsea talked about. We worked on Zuni Main Street, where we were had a studio that worked for uh, Zuni uh, Pueblo wanted to create its own Main Street program. Main Streets are, are programs through the federal and state funding that provide funding for communities to organize themselves um, at, and get funding. And so we did a project where Zuni became a, a designated Main Street to promote uh, the artisans in the Zuni community. So there's just a couple great examples of of um, I worked on the. Uh, 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 the, pre, the Plaza Preservation Plan with Ipai for Nambe Pueblo. So there's been a number of number of projects that that that, that I think it's the philosophy that with Ipai that Chelsea talked about that is changing the traditional, the, changing the mindset of the practice of planning, even where indigenous planning in our concentration becomes a vehicle or a way to uh, to shift the ways in which plant, community planners work. Moises, thank you for for all that information. Really compelling. To, to learn so much about planning and how it is applied in indigenous communities. And let's bring another student voice into the conversation. We'd have Vidal on the show as well. Vidal, I'd like to ask you, what's what's drawn you to community planning? Yeah, what's drawn me to specifically indigenous community planning is its focus in place-based traditional knowledge and really centering indigenous traditional knowledge in the process, um, making sure that all the generations are being involved, which Chelsea touched on in the seven generations model, uh, making sure that all the way from the youth of the community all the way to the elderly of the community are being involved and activating um, their intelligence and to really bring about a holistic plan into a community. Um, um, Growing up, in Santa Clara Pueblo, it, I was always fascinated with the built environment and um, in my community in general and the food systems and how uh, the interconnectedness of everything, the cultural landscape um, in general, and being able to plan for the future is really what brought me to the program. Now, Vidal, you mentioned having multiple voices in these conversations when, when plans are created, uh, young people, elders. And I'm very curious, as a student yourself, what are what is the value of having younger perspectives such as yours involved in the planning stages of community improvement? Yeah, I think it's very important um, in having a perspective of the youth because the youth are the ones that are going to eventually take over and be the ones in charge of their communities. And being the ones utilizing uh, the civic space or the health resources or um, the health resources or anything that we have on the Pueblo or on the reservation, 
um, they're going to be the ones that are going to eventually take over those programs and those processes. So I think involving their ideas and um, everything that they bring to the table is very important. Vidal, what types of indigenous planning projects do you find most inspiring? For me, um, I have a background in historic preservation. I've worked for the National Park Service, um, running uh, indigenous youth corps for about seven seasons now. So I'm very interested in the built environment. Um, I'm very interested in what San Juan Pueblo has been able to do with their preservation revitalization project of their Pueblo proper and um, being able to revitalize their Pueblo and bring family back and community back into that civic space and really activating it for them. I'm familiar with that project up there, San Juan Pueblo, uh, now known as Okea Wenge. Yeah, really, really fascinating. I've been by there. I've seen some of the development. Uh, interesting, interesting stuff. We have a caller on the line, Catherine, listening on KUNM in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Catherine, thanks for calling in. You're on the air. Hi there. Do I need to turn my speakerphone off? I would appreciate it if you would. Yeah, we get better audio when, when you're speaking just directly to the phone as, a, as opposed to the speaker. So... Yes, um, Catherine, down here on the river and in the floodplain of the Santa Fe River, and just and just um, yeah, okay. So I'm down here on the river, and I know they're about to widen the road. And I just think about: is the Native American um, indigenous perspective? Uh, being integrated into large city projects such as such as these. Um, so that's the basic question I have. Okay. Yeah, thanks for that comment, Catherine. And I think it's really appropriate. You mentioned a, a road widening there, and, and we think of so many uh, cultural landmarks and historic places in, in some of these urban areas, especially in the Southwest, where three of our guests are at today. So, uh, Moises, I'd like to, to ask you that question. You could comment on, on Catherine's uh, remarks there. How involved are I indigenous people in some of these broader decisions, like, say, the city of Albuquerque, when they do some of their development? Uh, yeah, that's the difference between, you know, federal agencies are often required to, uh, uh, to notify tribes. And it's interesting when city projects are developed, that consultation uh, doesn't necessarily transcend all the way. And it depends on each city how serious they want to take uh, in terms of, you know, this, the, the idea of, 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 of understanding indigenous knowledge for so, so it's important for, for cities in that process to always check in with the neighboring tribes and also uh, within, uh, within local advocacy groups. For example, in Santa Fe, I think around the monument issue, there was a, a, the Three Sisters Collective, and I remember Dr. Uh, Christina Castro was really involved in kind of uh, that conversation of, of the monument. So it seems like the city of Santa Fe should continue uh, consulting with you know, the local Pueblos and organizations like the Three Sisters Collective in that are the advocates um, for uh, indigenous uh, land, land, land back movements or uh, decolonizing urban spaces. 
And so cities, you know, my recommendation for cities anywhere would always be consult with their local tribes and also make an effort to to have um, a, a council of, of, of advocacy organizations like in Albuquerque, you know, we work with the American Indian Center that provides urban services to native, the, the uh, urban Indian pop, urban native population in Albuquerque. So uh, in Albuquerque, there is there is consulting with advocacy groups and the local tribes, but it also it's best practice to continue to do that. Okay. And Lana, I'd like to ask you uh, up there in, in Canada, further north where you are, uh, how does that process work in terms of, you know, there in Vancouver, some of these larger cities in Canada, uh, and some of those planning projects and, and getting input and feedback from, from local Indigenous groups? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with Moises in terms of um, the need to have that involvement and, and additionally to be um, considered, because I know there's been a big critique about Indigenous peoples as, stake- as being not just stakeholders, but being fundamental partners in these projects as the, um, the original caretakers and holders of those lands. And so, for example, in Vancouver, um, you know, it's not, it's not perfect what the city of Vancouver has done, but they've made some pretty significant strides, I think, especially compared to other uh, major municipalities in developing really robust relationships with the local land-based nations, the host nations, as we call them, uh, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish. And they have, um, they have tables where they are nation-to-nation um, relationships, where they meet with the nations. And there's been quite uh, a bit that has emerged out of there, including reclamation of some urban lands that were originally reserves. There's been uh, quite quite a lot of work has been done. They've been hiring Indigenous planners. They had a reconciliation planner um, whose job was really to be a cultural broker um, between groups, uh, which actually then removes the, the, the pressure and responsibility of Indigenous peoples to always be this kind of in-between between developers or others and the city. Um, so I think there's like some really promising practices that are emerging and it just it needs to keep happening and it needs to not always be on indigenous shoulders um, to necessarily do that work. Lana, we have two students on the show, native students that are, are pursuing careers in planning. How, how critical is it that we have more indigenous people um, in the field of community planning? I, I think it's so, it's so important. Um, and I think for all the reasons that, um, that, that everybody has described that, uh, you know, the, the planning that needs to happen that has always happened for millennia, um, and that has been fractured by colonization, but, you know, persists. We still have our communities, we still have our languages, our cultures, our teachings, our protocols. It's the people in the communities that are best situated to create that planning structure that we need to move forward. Um, and, and so it's, you know, for our own people to be doing that planning is really, really important. And then just additionally, I would say one of my big concerns is having, I love that cities and towns are starting to understand that they need to respond and they need to hire Indigenous people, but I really worry as well that they're not being supported in the ways that they should be, because I know I have colleagues who um, just are um, tasked with all of the things that are related to Indigenous people that really experience a lot of burnout 
Um, and so I think we, we, we need to support Indigenous planners, and then we need to really appropriately support them and make sure that they have all the resources they need to do the, the good work that they want to do. Is it a, is it a tough career, Lana? Is, is it stressful being a planner, just hearing what you're describing, like some of these lacks, a lack of resources and support? I think if you are um, going into mainstream planning, I think it can be. I, I think it can be a real challenge because, um, I, for example, I was an auxiliary planner with the city of Vancouver, and I ended up working with an awesome team that was really supportive and responded to um, the things that I, you know, uh, thought needed to be done. Uh, but there are other, you know, it's just, it, it's those two or three people that you're working with obviously are really important, but then you need those kind of uh, higher level managers who support that vision. And then you need others who will share the labor. Um, and so I think it can be a really tough goal because they don't, they don't reflect how we do our work as Indigenous people, um, you know, which is uh, a lot of different things, but I think just, you know, there's some common principles um, around the importance of relationships and responsibilities and um, and taking time, right, as Chelsea described, like that planning a year out, like these these relationships take time and, and municipalities operate on different, you know, cycles of elections and um, and different, you know, mm-hmm. different timelines. So I think it's really, really challenging, but going into our own communities, I think it's, it's like the most rewarding and beautiful work I think you can do. But I'm biased. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It it does sound, sound really rewarding. And, and, but, but again, obviously you're, you're working as part of a team as a planner and and probably uh, you can only be as good as that team is. So really important that you have those great people around you. And that's what I find so great about our show today is learning about some of these different organizations, the Institute there at UNM and other programs as well that support indigenous community planning. Folks, if you'd like to learn more, check out our website and we'll have some of those resources online for you to learn more about Indigenous community planning. We're going to have to wrap up the show now. Let me thank our guests, Dr. Liana Patrick, Chelsea Begay, Moises Gonzalez, and Vidal Gonzalez for this thought-provoking conversation into the fascinating world of Indigenous community planning. Join us tomorrow for a discussion about gardening. Are you planning a garden this year? If so, have you selected your plants yet? Join us and tell us about gardening and farming as the hobby and as a form of food sovereignty. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening to Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. 
For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.